know, anytime that you can, you can reduce the barriers to acquiring talent and retaining talent and keeping people excited. That's really, really important. It's, it's right in the middle. And, oh, come uh, on, Alex. I've mentioned this project like five times did? on this podcast. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Bean Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. I am Sophie De Benedetto, and I am joined by our fabulous panel of co-hosts. We've got Lars Bickman. Hey, Lars. Hello, hello. Bruce Tate. Hi, Bruce. Hello from beautiful Pompano Beach, Florida. Nice. And Alex Kumos. Howdy, howdy. So are three of the four of us in Florida right now? Because I just got to Miami yesterday. I well, think, like, I think we have night. a... We have a quorum in Florida in that case. Excellent, yeah. excellent. We do, yeah, yeah. And I, I just miss you to be in by... Florida. I know. I saw your tweet, Bruce, that you had Sophie, just left by, Miami. By about and I'm 48 like, hours. totally kicking myself. Yeah, that was so fun. Well, hopefully yeah. I'll catch you on your, you know, New York and the Northeastern leg of the loop. Absolutely, you will. All right. So, uh, well, Bruce, now that we've got you here, what's new with Graxio? Yeah, so we had a little bit of a, a stumble. <laughs> you know, we, we've got two computers on board and it's a two computer operation and one of them died. And so the great folks at Apple were able to get us in off schedule and allow us the dignity of mailing <laughs> the computer, one the Maggie's broken computer in. So, um, so we're a little okay. bit behind, but what's happening is we are working through Livebook next. And I think this is pretty cool. We did a little bit of a live book treatment for NX when when it was pretty new, but I think that we're all starting to understand that live book is something bigger, that it's going to transform Elixir in ways that nobody really anticipated when we released this thing. So we're going to talk about not just how to how to do a, a markdown cell and a coding cell, but how to solve specific scenarios around documentation and education and things like that. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I am really excited to see that content too, because I think that you're totally right that we don't really even see, I think, half the potential of that live view brings to the community yet. And uh, as more and more people adopt it, and especially as you're using it for education purposes, I, I just can't wait to see where it goes. So I hope that our listeners will check that out soon. And since we don't have a, a guest today, maybe it's a good time for a little bit of a digression into why I, I had this mental breakthrough that that computer developers all work with language, right? And so we always think about the structured language that we use, the compile thing. But the other part of our business is storytelling. We tell stories, right? We even have a language around metaphors and stories for introducing stories to, um, to like a scrum process or something like that. And the live book is a way of inverting control, almost like OTP inverts control, right? So instead of building a function that somebody else calls, right? Instead of embedding our um, a little bit of prose into our programs with comments or module documentations, this allows us to work the other way around where we have this first class tool for dealing with the human language and we get to drop in executable code and output and data to really marvelous effect. Yeah, I totally agree. I've uh, I've been diving into Livebook a little bit more and more. Uh, I'll we'll probably talk about it later in the show. But me and Hugo from Elixir Radar are working on a book 
and part of the book is a lot of the uh, code snippets that are in the text of the book. I've kind of extracted and stuffed in a live book for you know easy reference, uh, you know documentation stuff like that. And uh, I totally agree with you, Bruce. As a as a learning tool, it's it's phenomenal. The fact that you could just um, you know break up various sections, you can you can jump to them, you can run the code there, you can tweak the code there. It's 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 a very uh, unique experience. And unfortunately, I never played with any of the uh, what's the Python equivalent? Uh, was it Jupyter Notebooks? It is yeah. Jupyter Notebook originally. Yeah, so I don't, I don't, Python Notebook, I think. Yeah, so I can't draw any comparisons there because I, I totally missed that boat. Um, I don't know if the experience is the same, but I'm I'm definitely loving it. Uh, loving it in Elixir. For one thing, it doesn't have collaborative editing. So, so let me let uh, me put you there's on the a spot. big gap between those two. So let me put you on the spot, Alex. Are you actually going to release your book as a live book? It's it's going to be kind of like a package deal, I guess, since you're probing now. So we'll, be, we'll actually be launching it tomorrow. Uh, I don't know when this recording goes out, but it should be out when the recording goes out. But um, so there'll be a, a book uh, portion of it. So EPUB, PDF, all that good stuff. And then there'll kind of be um, complimentary live books, which eat with each of the chapters and sections. So if I imagine the workflow will be you read the book, you, you, you get all that great, great knowledge. And then, you know, let's say you need that stuff quick and easy. You open up the live book um, and you you go to the section that you need. And you're like, oh, that's how that thing worked. And you can you can play with the live book right then and there. So you're not saying it, but you're in the same boat that Groxio is in, right? It's a little bit too early to basically write the book in live book, which is what we all kind of want to do. But we're all kind of just a little nervous to dip our toe in there. And that's that's kind of it's where it's going. Uh, it's very obviously where things are going, but um, we're just not quite ready to take that that final push in fact you know when when we built Groxio, the first product that we built was this kind of this elixir learning you know hey type one plus one you got two congratulations and we found out that we really couldn't do what we wanted to do which was this live book experience so you know i'm, I'm excited to see where you go because i think that um that we're probably going to be going somewhere pretty similar that's kind of funny uh, that we point. converged on the same stuff without even talking about it. <laughs> right, on the same podcast, and we haven't talked about it. That's 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 too crazy. I've also been active with Livebook a little bit. I released this Nerves Quick Start video that I put together for the Nerves project, and that was a super fun little project, but it was also how to get from zero to Livebook with Nerves and then blink the built-in LED on a Pi. And like Frank has put some effort in there and some other people have contributed and that experience is so smooth. It takes you so like from zero to live book is like burn it to an SD card, shove it in there, done. The and video turned out to commands one minute and 38 seconds. <laughs> Amazing. Slightly sped up though. <laughs> Yeah, so I kind of I kind of love all of this this kind of innovation swirling right now in ways that nobody expected. So we we had this we had this this untouchable area that that Elixir would obviously never get to this machine learning space, and then kind of with with some nips and and some things that the Erlang community built long ago, we built this 
I won't say hacked, but I would say a beautiful interface into an alien programming model. And then we kind of we kind of merged that with some of the, the tools that Google put together for their machine learning um, environment. And then we kind of started seeing some innovation flare around that. And now some of those innovations are taking off and becoming their own things. It's just, it's a great time to be alive in Elixir and an Elixir developer. Yeah. yeah, I think that you won't get any argument from the rest of us on that sentiment. Um, but I know we're gonna have some time to get further into some of the projects that y'all are working on with Livebook, uh, as well as Nerve later on in this episode. So a quick announcement before I hand it over to our main host of the day. We haven't done the Process Mailbox in a little while because our Process Mailbox prize distributors, uh, aka Bruce and Maggie, have been, as our listeners may know, on the road or on the high seas. Uh, so we haven't been able to mail stuff out. So we put a pause on that, but we do have another giveaway coming up that we're excited to share with you guys. We have two free tickets to MPEX in early May in Salt Lake City. I don't know if any of our listeners have been to an MPEX conference before, but I really, really love them. This is the first one that will ever have been held in Salt Lake City, which is in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. In the past, we've had MPEX in New York, MPEX in LA, and it's just like a smaller, more intimate Elixir conference. And the organizers, I think, work really hard to really tie it into uh, just sort of like the vibe and the community of the cities in which they're in. So I know that when we did the New York ones, we had it in this little jazz club that was downtown. We would have live music. We had one year like an artist come and illustrate everybody that was on stage. It's just, it's a lot of fun. I think it has a really different feel to some of the much bigger conferences out there. And I know that uh, I know that we've got a great lineup. Um, if anybody listened to our most recent episode, I'm actually also giving a live view training the day before the conference, which I would love to see our listeners at. You can, by the way, use code SOPHIE to get 25% off. But in any case, we have two free tickets to give away and we would love to give them to you, our listeners. So opening up the process mailbox again, tweet at us at Beam Radio one hashtag at process mailbox and ask us your questions about all things Beam. And we will not only answer your question, but we will enter you to win a free ticket to MPEX Salt Lake City on May, I want to say 5th, but I could be wrong. It might be May 6th. You know, look it up. And uh, we'd love to hear your questions. I'd love to see you at MPEX in May. So yeah, submit them. Submit them to us on Twitter. And with that announcement, I will hand it over to our main host for today, who happens to be Alex. Alex, take it away. Sure thing. Yeah, I'm actually going to continue the conversation that uh, we were having. We're just going to round robin and see what everyone's working on and uh, maybe do some some shameless self-promotion. And, uh, uh, you know, our, our listeners can learn more about what we do in our free time, whether it's Elixir or non-Elixir things. So I'm going to I'm going to poke and prod Lars first and learn more about his nerves uh, live book uh, adventures. All right. Yeah. So. I've only really scratched the surface of Nervous Livebook, but in the process of putting together a video, you really have to figure out like what's what's the correct path here. Like you want to distill all the steps to just the, the base few steps that you need for success, but you also don't want to skip any steps that are necessary. So this one had all of like how do you find your firmware? How do you plug your uh, plug your SD card into your reader. How do you flash your firmware and include your Wi-Fi information? Because that's usually an easier, probably a safer bet than someone having the exact right cable for 
uh, for tethering to your to your device and then then getting started with that so you flash your firmware you plug it into your pi give it power it comes up and within a few moments usually I'm, could take a minute or so it's not raspberry pi zeros are not the fastest hardware out there um, you can go to nerves.local in your web browser and bam you're in a live book running on the nerves device and that's mind-bogglingly simple and there are a ton of examples of things you can do including things like oh this is your first hardware project okay you can do uh, blinky lights like this add a resistor here do 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 and do the whole proper hardware thing or do what i did and just demo with the actual led that you can control that is on the board and yeah livebook works as you'd expect the only sort of limitation i've run into with uh, with nerves and livebook is that mix install is not available and the reason for that is how sort of how uh, nerve systems are built and packaged so you don't really have mix on the device as far as i understand so it can't do mix install i hope it gets that ability at some point but i understand like for embedded development that's typically not what you'd need but for livebook it would be super useful but if you want to add some dependencies you just you simply add them to uh, the project and uh, re rebuild it reflash it and you'll have them available again and there's a ton it's of a just in time thing nerves. right when you reflash it it's a just-in-time thing right is that there's a there's a what's called a um there's an a and a b build and it can toggle between them and so it's it's a pretty it's a pretty clean process right yeah so when you're dealing with at least when you're dealing with a typical nerves project and you if you just essentially clone nerves live book to your to the local machine you'll you'll have that project that you can play around with um, but it any nerves project has this sort of you can push over SSH like oh I just want to push in new firmware, and like it's smoother than many server deployments I've done. It's just hardware push to the hardware, and it it set it sets it up on a new partition, tries to start it. If it totally totally fails, it will fall back to the previous one. Yeah, which is which is great. Like as always, uh, nerves the nerves team and Frank do an amazing job uh, just love working with that stuff but i actually have have a sort of a segue here you mentioned that we were converging on the same sort of thing and this is something that i've i've seen like alex told me a few things he'd been working on i was like you saved me so much work i was gonna do that and now i don't have to alex can you tell me what you've been up to sure yeah i've actually been going on a bit of like an experiment uh, like rampage it's like all these things that i've wanted to do for a long time i finally found a little bit of time and i was like you know what in one or two evenings i'm gonna like poc this and see how it pans out so i think the stuff that you're alluding to lars is my uh what i've been experimenting with with um uh, sqlite and i've actually made two projects with sqlite that i found very interesting so the first one i played around with were uh, was a project where I would use a dynamic supervisor registry and then dynamic uh, um, ecto repos with SQLite so that every single user in uh, this you know, POC dummy app 
had their own SQLite database. And that kind of gets you around the limitation, uh, putting air quotes here on limitation. Uh, in SQLite, where only one person can, or one uh, thing can mutate the SQLite file at a time, right? So by sharding your SQLite uh, database across all your different users, you can kind of achieve this, uh, this unprecedented web scale with SQLite. But uh, that was more of just kind of like an experiment to see you know, how I can leverage uh, dynamic repos, dynamic supervisors, and, and uh, the registry, and, and see how all that works. And the code is on, is on GitHub. We'll put in the show notes. But it was, a very, it was a very interesting project, and a lot easier than I thought it was going to be to do something like that. And uh, you know, all the stuff that's in, in, in Ecto really makes that kind of an interaction pretty seamless, to be honest. There was, so there was a couple of gotchas here and there, but at the end of the day, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, actually, writing about Ecto and multi-tenancy was, was the first reason I was invited to a podcast ever. Uh, so that was Elixir Mix. And I will just say, I can't imagine a more sort of thrifty and resource, um, let's say, yeah, resource efficient way of running sort of multiple customers. Everyone gets their own database than just a bunch of SQLite under a Phoenix app. There's something really compelling about that. But SQLite has a drawback. Making it reliable, sort of having a fallback if your server crashes, if your disk goes away, can be a little bit hairy. You can copy the files, but you have to make sure that you're not currently reading or writing them and all of that stuff. So SQLite and resiliency can be tricky but i know you went into that as well alex so i did i did yeah the the adventure continued there uh i can't remember who was on twitter it was i think maybe it was chris mccord was tweeting something about uh using a project called lightstream to actually stream the write ahead log for sqlite to uh, an s3 bucket and, oh come uh, on alex i've mentioned this project like five times did? on this podcast was it pro right, maybe? Uh, my it was then. probably Chris right. McCord. I don't think you pay attention to what I'm See, saying. I was like, you should have tweeted it out, Lars, and I would have paid attention more. <laughs> I, I respond to like colorful tweets with snapshots and screenshots. <laughs> but uh, all right, I'll, I will I will attribute this to you. Lars once told me about a project called Lightstream, <laughs> where you can stream the write ahead log for SQLite to a uh, S3 compatible. Um, block storage service and so i i started digging into lightstream um i wasn't about to rewrite it in elixir as as cool as that could have been but i decided to instead wrap it uh, in an elixir library and just run it as a as a port and then just pass in kind of the configuration from repo to the lightstream library that i wrote and then that kind of figures out all the config necessary for that uh, that repo starts the lightstream binary as a port and then just streams all your data to uh, to S3 or, or Minio or your, your block storage uh, of choice. So that I, I think that ticks the box now, Lars, to make SQLite super resilient because you, know, you just add this one thing to your supervision tree and boom, database backups, you don't need anything else except like a $5 S3 storage solution. So, and that again was also pretty easy uh, to set up. I think that library took like, three days to, to write and publish and, and get it going. And, uh, you know, I think it just, again, speaks to developer experience uh, and tooling in Elixir. I reached for, I can't remember the name of the Erlang library. It's like exec Earl, I think. 
but uh, I use that just for for a clean shutdown, so I could send um, uh, Lightstream a sig term when when things are being terminated on the Elixir side. But yeah, it was it was pretty easy to put it together, and I think you know it, it makes SQLite a very compelling uh, uh, solution for something super lightweight on the server side. You've saved me so much time. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I do need some co-maintainers. So if you see that there's uh, there's problems with it, be sure to open up some PRs. I'll have to take a look at that. All right. Sophie, what have you been up to? I haven't been writing a ton of new Elixir code lately, which makes me kind of jealous about some of the projects that you guys have been talking about. I'm excited to check them out. Um, but I've been working on just like some writing and some talks and stuff like that coming up. So I'm going to do a keynote at the Big Elixir in New Orleans at the end of March and certainly would love to see, you know, any of our listeners there. And in that one, I'm going to get into, so I got this idea from like a lunch and learn talk that I did with some of the folks at Smart Logic a couple months ago. And this was even earlier on in LiveView's lifespan when some of these questions that I'll get into were still unanswered. But during that discussion, what I was really hearing from people and from from even that group of people as an organization was that there were still a lot of hesitancies around adopting LiveView. And that really gave me pause because I've just been so excited, needless to say, about all things LiveView that I can't imagine why anyone who is already steeped in the Elixir and the Phoenix community would not want to adopt it and put it out into production. But some of the stuff that they talked about, you know, obviously made sense to me, right? What happens if you need to restore state? If a deploy goes down while somebody's filling out, you know, a complicated form or the LiveView crashes or something, you lose it. Um, something that, you know, I have heard prior to that conversation, but still came up then was, well, what happens when I reach the limits of the interactivity that I get with LiveView and I really need a lot of my own custom JS? Am I better off, you know, with React or something uh, where I have a lot more control over the JS and the front end and, you know, a couple other questions like that. So it really made me want to dig into the reasons that people are not adopting LiveView because of course we all talk a lot about the reasons that people are adopting it. And especially in the past, I don't know, let's say six months or so, versions of LiveView that have come out, I think have really knocked down pretty much all the objections at least or the hesitations that I've come across in conversation and just kind of looking around the community. So what I'm gonna do in this talk is I'm gonna kind of take a tour through all of the blockers and the obstacles to widespread live view adoption that I've seen and heard and talk about the newer live view features that I think really destroy them. Because what I think this unlocks for us is not just widespread live view adoption, but seeing live view adoption push Elixir adoption and push Phoenix adoption. And that's something that I'm really excited to see happen uh, to grow our community. So that's the first thing that I've been working on which has been kind of interesting. And that's why I put my little survey out on Twitter, by the way, if anybody saw that, I know that Lars didn't even answer, thank you. I'm curious to hear from people in the community, if you are using LiveView, what for? Uh, and if you're not, why not? And hopefully we can convince you that all of your concerns are now evaporated. So one of the cool things about what Sophie is doing here is that she's, she's talking about not just not just live views limitations, these are things that are already solved within the greater Erlang and Elixir and Phoenix and JavaScript communities. What we're talking about is the systemic use of good interfaces to make those assist, to make those 
individual pieces available automatically within the live view framework, right? Chris, have you seen my slide deck? Are you in my Google Drive? Because that, yeah, you said that that was so well put. And I think that's really the takeaway in the theme that I'm hoping to draw out in this talk. Like, could you have figured out how to upload forms prior to the form upload API being baked into live view? Absolutely. Could you have written your own code that handles state restoration if the live view crashes or if it deploy occurs, absolutely. But what I'm seeing is time and again is live view is taking these problems and these obstacles that are painful and that create friction in the live view development process and baking them into the framework so that the framework time and again handles the hard parts and the tedious parts and just exposes to you, the application developers, just enough of the right levers to pull to add in you know, your custom business logic, your custom application functionality. And I think that is a really powerful set of tools when it comes to productivity and just like developer happiness. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that it kind of points to is kind of slowing down during the development of Phoenix and finding the right abstractions. And once you have those right abstractions, then the lines between what's a framework and what's a language, what's a framework and what's an application, those things start to blur. And that's when things start to get exciting. And that's that's we're kind of in this vortex where we're not just seeing that in one single framework right now. We're seeing that across multiple. I mean, we've talked about Nerves and Livebook and Phoenix and LiveView, and all of these things have connections between them, probably built by people that never really saw the use cases of, of the peers. But since they're going through clean interfaces and good abstractions, they don't need to know about each other, right? And, and these, these, these dominoes are, are falling, right? These, these, these blockades are getting systemically knocked down and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to put it too, systemically knocked down. Because again, you could have solved and people did solve a lot of these problems, you know, just themselves writing their own code on top of LiveView or within to their Phoenix applications. But to see LiveView as a framework, treat these common problems as first-class citizens, I think is really exciting to see. And that's why I fully anticipate, uh, like I said earlier, to see LiveView adoption start to drive Elixir adoption and drive Phoenix adoption. Because people outside of our community, I, I think, I hope, are going to want to reach for this framework. Yeah, I totally so agree. And, and if, yeah. uh, I don't know if Hacker News is a metric for, for anything, you know, the comment section of Hacker News. But I have seen, like, any time that there's a post about either LiveView or um, uh, what's the one in PHP Livewire or Hotwire and Ruby and and uh, you know all those kind of uh, you know similar frameworks, the the comments are usually pretty positive where it's like reach for these tools you know whether it's Elixir PHP Ruby uh, I think C Sharp also has a similar uh, uh, framework like reach for these tools definitely before you reach for you know uh, an SPA framework for for the majority of your use cases unless your use case really mandates that you reach for an SPA framework stay away from them because the, the complexity is just too much and it's uh, you're not going to get the velocity that you think you're, you are. Uh, so I think, you know, I think uh, LiveView is on a good path and, and so are these other frameworks. And it's like, you you don't need these, you know, complex build tool chains for JavaScript where you got to download like, you know, one, one gigabyte of node modules this, just to transpile from this language to another and then finally get it into ES6. And I think it's a, I think it's a very, very exciting, uh, uh, you know, segment to be in. That JavaScript is getting written, right? It's just getting written and pushed into the framework. And that's it's it's no different than what than what's happening with programming languages, right? So more and more of the operating system of of the 
the underlying services of, of the base library APIs that were provided by Erlang and, and, and other languages as well. Those things are still getting written and used. They're just getting consumed in higher and higher levels of the application. And that's, that's a healthy thing. And that's what we should be striving to do. Yeah, and I think what, what you said, Alex, that you're seeing in comments or in conversation that people are saying, you know, don't reach for that spa unless you absolutely have to, you know, don't reach for that complexity is exactly what we had anticipated way back out in even the very early days of LiveView. And I think we didn't really know how far away we were from that becoming a reality. And I think that it's definitely getting closer uh, that people would want to reach for a framework like LiveView instead of reaching for the traditional spa. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I have seen quite a few like in production, you know, people are hiring and making money off of these live view apps. It's, it's a yeah. real thing. It's not like a toy project. It's a, it's a real thing. Yeah, I think that was definitely a recurring theme in ElixirConf um, Austin from back in August. There were a ton of live view talks and a lot of them were centered on, especially like smaller scrappier companies, a lot of like smaller consultancies saying that they were reaching for live view to be productive and to make money, frankly, uh, you know, for their clients or for themselves quickly with very little overhead. And it's interesting because it's like the same refrain that you heard from Rails, like however many years ago at this point, I don't know, seven years ago, 10 years ago, time flies. But now we're hearing it about LiveView, which is another thing that I hoped, anticipated, and I think we're definitely seeing come about. And I've heard the same thing from a much larger consultant, such as Dockyard, like Brian Cardarella spoke in at length about the cost of the front end side of any development project. It's mm -hmm. typically about as big as what would have been just the project yep. previously. Like essentially it has doubled. You're building almost all the abstractions again. Um, and I actually went into this a little bit in a video when I tried to explain what Phoenix Live View is and what it's for and sort of looking back a little bit <laughs> through the what last 20, 30 years of web development and what problems have we been having? When did we start doing things a little bit more dynamically? When did we introduce better and better APIs? When did we get single page applications? And why are we backing off of them? So yeah, I've touched on that. And to your point, Alex, about hiring, is it just me or is everybody hiring right now? I hear so much about Elixir hiring and I'll go into the shameless self-promotion that Alex asked for. So I talk to a lot of Elixir companies because I do consulting and people reach out to me. And I talk to a lot of Elixir developers. And these companies are typically not the companies you've heard of because there are so many companies using Elixir out there that you've never, ever heard of. And on the flip side, there are tons of developers doing Elixir or wanting to do Elixir out there that you've also never heard of. And that's sort of something I'm trying to tackle. So if you're looking for to get into Elixir or looking for Elixir work, you can go to underu.io slash jobs.html. Like there's a jobs link in the menu. And that's, uh, that's where I post the companies I've talked to. So I talk to the leadership team, I talk to the developers, and I do a write-up of 
what I consider this company to be, what I think their strengths are, who they should be appropriate for. And I provide a way to uh, send in an application that goes to me. Then we have a conversation and figure out if, if this is a good idea. And this, the, the grand idea behind this is not that I, I've always dreamed of being a tech recruiter. That's not sort of my, my fantasy, but rather I want to keep doing what I'm doing with the videos, with the newsletters, with the blog posts. And I want to find more time for that. And I want to grow Elixir. So these sort of, these sort of feed into each other. I already have connections to companies. I already have connections to, to people that know Elixir. And connecting these two, turns out, can be valuable. So if you're at a company that should be reaching out to the Elixir community, that should be prepping the way and actually are looking to hire Elixir developers, feel free to reach out. And you'll, you'll find links to reaching, reaching me on the website and on the jobs page. And if you're looking for Elixir work, uh, take a look at what's up there right now. It's for currently I have for the US and Sweden right now, but also sign up for the newsletter where, where this information will show up as other companies join. So, so far it's just getting started. Um, within, within the first week, I had good applicants for the first company that showed up and you've never heard of this company before. And the candidates that reached out to me are candidates you would never see on the open market because they were comfortable in existing positions, but they reached out because they believed in what I was telling them. So it's an interesting thing and I hope it goes somewhere. Yeah. So Lars, I, I definitely think it's going to go somewhere. And the reason is that you are such a good storyteller um, and that primarily is is what is is what recruiting and programming both are right it's it's um you need to be able to communicate requirements you need to be able to help people understand um not just what a technology is in the first place and to get a comfort in a comfort level with the technology in the first place but also to kind of tell the story that hey what you are seeing there this shortage of talent is not an end game right? This is, um, this, is the, this is a symptom of a problem in the way that people are thinking about bringing in talent in the, in the open market in all the programming space. Um, and, and you are an excellent, um, you, you do such an excellent job with kind of breaking through that barrier. And I'm really excited to watch where it goes for you. You're too kind, but yeah, I'm very excited about it. And I really think companies benefit from putting themselves out there and being visible in the community before they try to recruit. And it's hard because small companies that are scrappy startups and all of that, they are typically very busy marketing themselves to their customers. But we all know that sort of finding developers is a hard job and it's, it's heavy it's heavy on the marketing side. Like you need to have a compelling pitch for developers on why they should be talking to you because they have tons of options right now. 
And uh, I, I think companies can reach out with, with sort of less effort than they might imagine. And I'm happy to help with that kind of thing. I, super excited to do this stuff. Yeah, the technical marketing, um, that, that kind of, that place is, um, it's underserved and it, it's so incredibly valuable at a time like this. You know, anytime that you can, you can reduce the barriers to acquiring talent and retaining talent and keeping people excited, that's really, really important. It's, it's right in the middle. I also like that you're also focusing specifically on Elixir. Uh, I think I actually wrote a blog post, was it last, middle of last year? I don't remember. But um, yeah, I mean, looking specifically for a job that you're doing Elixir full-time is, is a real thing. I mean, uh, I, I remember reading Sasha Yurik's book, uh, 2015, 2016, I don't, I don't remember. I think it's 2015. But after that, I was like, that's it. I need to, I need to find a job where I do Elixir full-time because I think this is where I want to be for a while. And so I, I went out and actively sought out a job. That's all, the only jobs I was applying to were Elixir jobs. And I got my first Elixir job I think 2017, something like that. And since then, I've, I've never looked back. I don't, like, I don't look for any job where doing Elixir is not a good portion of my day for, like, for that reason. So I think, I think that's really, really good, Lars, that you're specifically looking for, for you know, Elixir companies and Elixir developers and trying to kind of uh, bring the two together. That's really nice. Should we keep on this training and education theme and hear from Bruce? Yeah, I think it's it's that's really where I've been focusing more than anywhere else. So Sophie has been gracious to to work with me on this programming live view book where we've kind of talked about and and refined a couple of programming models where I kind of had had some rough ideas where they were going um, around CRC and um, and also James Gray when we worked with the um, with the B book, um, the the designing Elixir systems with OTP. Um, I've been actually taking small teams, actually up to 20 small teams so far have gone through our OTP training. And that's that's our Elixir 101 course. It's also our, um, we often see teams with beginning and intermediate Elixir developers wanting to take the next step and understanding how to layer systems and, and how, how to effectively introduce Elixir into those teams, and they're finding that some of the um, some of the concepts, some of the abstractions, some of the layering techniques are a little bit difficult to manage without a guide. And so what I've been focusing on is really refining how do you teach OTP to a beginning Elixir developer or to an experienced Java or JavaScript developer in a way that they can be really productive and, and, um, and quickly. And what I've found is that it's much more important to cover abstractions and layering and software design than individual frameworks like OTP or LiveView or things like that. So our classes, though they are framed as primarily OTP or LiveView classes, they all turn into the same thing, which is effective Elixir design. And what we're finding is that when we put, when we take small teams and when we give them a maximum amount of time of hands behind the wheel um, and actually writing the code rather than me talking um, at people, um, and when we get people collaborating and working together, what we find is that when someone has the steering wheel, when they have the keyboard in their hands, 
they learn much more quickly. When the, when the class sizes are smaller, they learn much more quickly. When, um, when we focus on design concepts more than checking off boxes on a syllabus, people learn much more quickly. So that's what we've been trying to focus on. And that's, that's getting most of our attention on the loop with, with a couple of different writing projects mixed in. That's really cool. I was wondering, do you use any like specific tools for this uh, training? Perhaps live book? Question mark. So actually, the first time we're going to introduce live book is going to be our next um, our next public OTP course. One of the things that we do is we actually have the class build out base OTP abstractions, but from Elixir primitives, right? And um, I know that that many different people have used this technique before, but it's different when it's not a monologue. <laughs> when when people have to struggle through their own concepts, when we start with the different types of functions that that work together to compose um, different stories, and then when we actually consume those those individual functions with um, something that looks like a gen server, and then when you turn that into a gen server. All of that can be done. All of the, the base abstractions can be taught um, in a much more effective way with the live book because you can actually capture the prose and the code snippets at the same time. And so the students can take notes in their own words. I'm really excited to, to take another shot at this where we have people collaborating on the same, on the same live book. And it's not this this binder that you send home with a, with a customer that they can never break away from. It's actually something that becomes more of a cultural thing within, within a team to, to take notes around a concept in their own words and expand their own research on an ongoing basis in that way. So I'm, I'm excited about this technique. That's really I love that you're incorporating this aspect of people like taking notes and writing and documenting what they're learning, because I find that um, I got like a little taste of this back when I was teaching at Flyer and with Steven and part of the requirements of being a student there was that you would have to write a blog post like three times or something by the end of the course. And that was just kind of my first taste of seeing how powerful writing was as a tool for teaching and forcing someone to sit there and actually articulate in writing, you know, what they learned, how something works, what questions they might still have just like massively accelerate the learning of that individual. And I've seen it again and again in like the mentoring group, Bruce, that you run that I participate in anytime that we get people to take notes or write something up, or if somebody ever kind of steps out on their own and writes a blog post about something that they've learned while we've been working together. Um, it's so gratifying to see them make these brand new connections and then really build the solid foundation. So the fact that you're kind of treating that as like a first place class citizen that's baked into how you run these courses um, is really cool to see. Yeah, and I, I would add a couple of things, um, you know, to to toot um, Sophie's horn a little bit. Um, one of the things that she's been instrumental in doing is um, actually getting people to push themselves forward in the conference setting. So we've had a number of our students give their first Elixir Conf talks. That's exciting to see. And it comes from a culture of basically not just doing writing programs and getting them to work, but writing programs in collaboration with others in a way that not only do they need to work, but they can be clear to others and then documenting the experience. That's a really powerful thing that, um, that I, had, I had never really experienced. So 
is kind of mixing in um, what I've learned in Groxio with what Sophie has learned in the Flatiron School and what Brett has learned with, with teaching the English language to Chinese speakers and what John has learned in working with hardware. Just all of these, all of these skills are coming together to, to actually push the same idea that when you can move forward as a professional by documenting your experience, by teaching what you're doing to other people, by writing clear code that works and communicates, all of these things are extremely powerful techniques. Um, and to be able to incorporate these in a professional course is fun and, and uh, very satisfying to me. That's really, uh, that's really interesting. Um, I also like the fact that you're taking a very interesting approach to how you wanna teach these uh, kind of like fundamental concepts in Elixir and OTP. And, uh, I think that's probably one of the things that is very foreign to most programmers coming to Elixir, just because it is a very, very unique, you know, runtime, a very unique language. So I think getting people to, you know, layer that foundation and really, really build that pyramid from the bottom up, I think is, is super important. And it'll make you not have a, not have a bad time with, uh, with Elixir and uh, Merlang and OTP. Yeah, it's, it was fun to write a book together, Alex, and, and to actually see your take on on the CRC technique that we're teaching and, and how you kind of you know, built on the little foundation that we that we established with the Graxio weather station and you know grew that into your own thing that just kept on, you know, you kept on adding layer upon layer upon layer to this this system. It was a lot of fun to see. Yeah, that one became a, a full stack project rather quickly. Whereas, like you're building, you're building the hardware, collecting the metrics. All right, now you're making a very, very small Phoenix backend to collect the metrics and store them in Postgres and TimescaleDB. DB. And then the additional last layer is let's visualize it with, uh, you know, with Grafana. Um, but yeah, that was that was a really cool project. And it was, you know, I, I think we've talked about it in the past where it's like, I think that book was ninety pages. It was definitely less than hundred pages. Crazy. But the amount Crazy. of the amount of stuff you did in less than 100 pages it still blows my mind it still blows my mind yeah and, and people don't understand that writing a short book like that is way harder than writing a long book yeah for sure and in fact i've enjoyed the writing process so much that this is a great segue to the next book that i'm writing which uh, again i think bruce would converge on some similar topics without even talking about them because the next book i'm working on is called uh, elixir patterns and the website is elixirpatterns.dev but uh, i'm kind of taking this very similar approach where it, the book is meant for i'd say not not beginner but not advanced either. i'm kind of i'm kind of looking at that middle of the road elixir developer who's trying to go from beginner to intermediate and uh, and a little bit in the beginning of advanced so i'm i'm trying to lay down that 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 foundation for how do you you know when do you reach for a supervisor how do you do how do you design the supervision tree what are some common ways of putting together gen servers to kind of do everyday tasks right like how do i make a, a gen server do cron jobs how do i make a gen server kind of coordinate a worker pool some some simple things and the idea is that by implementing these these patterns uh first of all if you need them in in your day job you can you can easily turn to them but it's also how do I design kind of like these mini programs using uh, gen servers and task supervisors and stuff like that? Because at, at the end of the day, like a gen server in and of itself is kind of like a little mini program, right? It's 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 got its own event loop and it's it's handling messages and it's it's a it's a standalone little program. So how do you design these little programs in your uh, in your application to all coordinate and work together? And uh, you know how do you really understand the callbacks and the the, the life cycle of these? Um, uh, you know, these interfaces. So I think, I think we've kind of gone again, converged at the same kind of location of how do you lay down a good foundation and how do you, uh, how do you really leverage the runtime that's available to us? 
it's design, right? It's, it's all design. And I think that that's one of the great things about what you're doing with the live book is that um, so in many ways, what you're providing is templates. And, um, and you know, a gen server itself is a template. It's a program somebody else wrote that they can plug things into, right? And what you're giving them is a template that uses the gen server template in the form of a live book that they can experiment with before kind of uh, grabbing it out of the live book and, and posting it somewhere else, which is kind of part of where, what we're doing with the Groxio course, right? We're, we're going to show um, that proof of concept work and template work in a live book is an excellent combination. First, because it's, it's scripted. And second, because you have the opportunity to mix in prose that describes one iteration to the next. I, I love what you're doing here, Alex. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, it's templates and turtles all the way down. Anyone else want to plug anything? I've mentioned a few times now that I've got the live view training coming up at M5 from Salt Lake City. And I kind of, this is going to sound bad, I but I don't mean it this way. I kind of don't feel like making a training. Uh, and I don't mean to say that I don't want to like go to MPEX and do this. I'm so excited to go to MPEX and do this and meet the people that have signed up. But I feel like a lot of times I approach these workshops and I put a lot of process around it. Like I'll create GitHub repos and test suites and I'll set up GitHub classroom and it'll track your progress and there'll be lectures and notes and slides. But I'm sort of feeling like I want to experiment with something really different and just, I'm not going to just show up unprepared. I've got a whole app that I want people to build out. Like I've got my own versions of all the features that I want them to create set, but I kind of want to just wing it a little bit. I don't know if that sounds bad. I don't know if you guys kind of know what I'm getting out. Like I just sort of want to really put this in the hands of the students uh, and be there to support them as they hack their way through it without kind of saying like, okay, hour of lecture, I'm going to tell you this. Now you go do exactly these four things that I direct you through. So I don't know, am I being lazy or is there maybe something here? No, this is great, Sophie. Come on, go full finger paint though. Yes, yeah. No rules. Go wild. I strongly encourage this approach. This is what we do with the Groxia course. Uh, really? we, we build something non-trivial and mm -hmm. we, we normally take four passes through it. First, mm -hmm. we build the base abstraction with something really simple, mm -hmm. um, whether it's a counter or I don't know, whether it's a timer or something just really, really simple. Then we take the abstraction, we add layers to it. Then we, um, we actually apply the abstraction to the thing that we're working, we're working on like a gen server or a live view application. And then we code it the last time we take the same passes through, but with something non-trivial. Mm -hmm. And so almost half the class is working on something really stupid like a counter, right? And then right, maybe you right. take the counter, you change it from integers to maps, you know, something with a with a key of a map one or of, of a count of with an integer. And then, you know, you kind of, you layer onto that. And then by the time the students get to the place where they're actually plugging gen server or live view or something else mm -hmm. in, it looks almost trivial. And you didn't do right. that by building in by going through the student's pain for them. They mm -hmm. have to go through the pain. The pain lubricates the learning process. You did that by actually breaking through unnecessary pain, right? I, I, I love this approach. I love it with capital L. I'm actually thrilled to hear you say that because one of the little doubts in my head as I've been like playing around with this idea has been like, 
but Graxio is always so polished. Like how will this deck up to the way that Bruce does it? But it sounds like, uh, you know, in spirit, it's not totally unaligned. And yeah, I mean, I think part of it too is that I have so little time with the folks in that workshop. I think we're only going to be together. It's just one day. So it's going to be like six hours. And I feel like, you know, people who are new to LiveView, but who are experienced Phoenix developers, like don't need me to sit there and walk them through a bunch of slides on like the LiveView lifecycle. I can tell you about that and we can just build things. Um, plus, I just think it'll be more fun. So come to my workshop where I'll be completely unprepared. Just kidding. We're going to figure it out together. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, two things. First, Groxio is not polished. We pride ourselves <laughs> in not being polished and leaving mistakes in. And mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm we, leaving some yeah. bugs in, kind of on purpose and kind of it because I think there'll be good opportunities. Not on purpose. Yeah. Because we're unpolished, because mm -hmm. real programmers make real mistakes and yes. people need to see that, right? So and the second thing is that this does not take less preparation. This takes more. But the, but the good thing about that more preparation is that the time that you put in studying, learning, and, and building in your own pain gets to count as some of that preparation. You get to reuse some of that, some of the pain um, within the context of your course. And, and uh, I'm, I'm so excited to see how this, how this turns out. And um, it's, it's the most important thing we ever did with the Groxio teaching model. If you look at all of the testimonials, you'll notice that there are no testimonials with our old teaching model that had me talk at people, right? And all yeah. the testimonials are, um, you let us drive and you let us discover what we needed to discover on our own. Yes, yes, go. That's really good to hear. All right, Bruce says that it's okay. So this is how we're doing it. And I hope to see you all there. All right, on that note, thanks guys for letting me dig into that and just kind of work my way through a slightly personal problem. On that note, thank you so much, Alex. This was a really fun topic. We always, you know, kind of touch on things that people are working on when we're just chatting at the beginning, but having the full episode to really dig in and hear from you guys what you're working on, how you're thinking about it uh, was so rewarding. So thank you so much for this. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and thanks to Lars and Bruce, our co-hosts for today. And big shout out to Graxio. Huge thank you to Graxio as always. Graxio is career fuel for programmers. If you aren't already so excited to see what's going to come out with live book, I don't know. I don't know how we could possibly convince you. Check it out. It's going to be great. Thank you, Bruce. And I'll catch you guys next time. This was a lot of fun, folks. This one was great. Yeah, I loved this.